This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hi everyone, Lucy Kippist here. I'm the editor of Flying Solo and this episode of our podcast is brought to you by Flying Solo's brand new business class membership. It's your annual pass to great deals, discounts, tips and wisdom for building the business of your dreams. Plus you get the opportunity to be a guest on this podcast all for just $165. Head to our website for details. You might post something on social media and then spend the next two hours checking back every five minutes to see how it's performing. Does that scenario sound familiar to you? Because that's exactly what we're talking about with today's guest, Steve Glaveski, also the author of the quote I just read out. Steve is a highly productive person. He's the co-founder of Collective Campus, a corporate innovation accelerator that helps organizations navigate change. He's also an author, the host of the Future Squared podcast, and sometimes a stand-up comedian. Packing all of that into one life has to come with a recipe for success. Steve, it's great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. And I have to say, uh, referring to me as a stand-up comedian would be an insult to the the, the true stand-up comedians out there, but I'll take it anyway. <laughs> well, I read that you do it and I'm interested to hear about it. It's a very brave thing to do. Um, I wanted to start by, you know, at the beginning of your journey, really, you came to entrepreneurship after a corporate career, which is a journey a lot of our community um, have also shared. Can you tell me a little bit more about what triggered the decision to make the leap to running your own business? Sure. So like a lot of people, I think I subscribed to society's conventions of what success looked like. and, And for me, that meant uh, going to university, getting my undergrad, getting my master's degree, uh, getting a gig with the likes of uh, Ernst & Young and working for KPMG and Macquarie Bank and doing that whole thing for about 10 years <clears throat> until I got to my 30th birthday. And I found that while I was ticking all these boxes, I had the, the six-figure salary, I had the, the corporate junkets, the business class flights, all that sort of stuff. I found myself feeling comfortably miserable. Like I didn't really believe in in the value of the work that I was tasked to do. I didn't feel like I had freedom to innovate or to challenge the way things uh, were being done. And I was kind of stuck in a very narrowly defined box, um, which just left me feeling somewhat frustrated. And so that for me, after you know months or perhaps years of being somewhat uh, frustrated in, in, in that position was really the trigger. But like most things, you don't jump out and, and uh, the, the first sign of difficulty, it may require a number of different experiences to get you to do that. And, and for me, it was that and then eventually founding a web company called Hotdesk, which was like an Airbnb for office space, connecting um, vacant meeting rooms with, with people who needed it. Um, I spent about $2,000 building a little prototype. I sent a press release. I wrote myself to about 100 journalists. And and of course, only one of them got back to me, but it happened to be a journo from the Australian. They wrote the article, they published it, and that got the interest of investors. And that was almost eight years ago. And 
you know, that was my ticket out of the corporate world and uh, I've never really looked back since. So the way that you are describing that sounds pretty nonchalant, but that's actually an excellent outcome there in terms of, it's all about timing sometimes, isn't it? In terms of when you make the decision and what you line up. Definitely. But then you sort of need a little bit of luck at the same time. No, luck is absolutely huge. And I think sometimes we can do all the right things and, and be unlucky. And sometimes we can do all the wrong things and somehow serendipity falls in our lap. So I think the best way to, to give yourself the best chance of being lucky is just by doing stuff. Um, because, you know, luck is really the intersection of opportunity and preparation. And, you know, there's a lot of so-called lucky people out there, but I bet they didn't get lucky without doing any of the difficult work. Absolutely true. That is very true. Um, and the idea for Hot Desk, did that come to you as you were, while you were still in that corporate sphere, or is that something that came as a result of deciding, you know, I'm done with this? Or was it an idea kind of going through your head before? It was an idea that was kind of going through my head because at the time as a consultant, I visited a lot of offices and I found that there was heaps of vacant space everywhere. Um, and at the same time, the startup ecosystem was starting to, to pick up. This was around 2012, particularly in Australia. Um, freelancing was starting to pick up as well. Um, but there was no, there weren't too many, you know, so-called co-working spaces at the time. And so I, f- I figured that this was a good way to connect those two sides of the, of the market. But I have to say that while I had luck building the supply side uh, on Hotdesk up to about 1,300 locations across uh, Asia Pack, demand was a different story. And, and that had its own challenges as, as anybody who's tried to build a two-sided marketplace of any kind will attest to. Um, you know, building a one-sided marketplace is difficult enough, getting that value proposition right, building it for two sides of the market and br- bringing them together at the same time in, in perfect harmony. That's really, really challenging. Mm, absolutely. So how would you then describe when I listen to your podcast, to me, you sound like someone who is very focused in terms of what you're looking to achieve in life. Do you think that you have a mission or a purpose that you could describe to us? Yeah, definitely. I think at its core, it's just to unlock people's latent potential to, create impact for the world and lead more fulfilling lives. And that has manifested in us working with you know, large corporations and helping unlock the potential of people there, as well as having incubated about 100 startups in the past five years and, and helped them raise about $32 million to date. And outside of that, it's helping individuals. So whether that's appearing on podcasts like like Flying Solo, whether that's hosting my podcast, or whether that's just blogging and writing books, I think everything I do is geared towards helping people um, unlock their previously latent potential and just get more fulfillment out of how they spend their time at work, but also freeing up time to, to enjoy their lives as well. And, and do you think by helping other people achieve those things in their life that that also helps you achieve those things in your life i think by virtue of doing work that is important it's motivating so um, marcus aurelius the roman philosopher king said that nothing should be done without purpose and um, one of my podcast guests brad stolberg also said that purpose is the world's greatest performance enhancer Um, and i think when i'm doing work that's important and when i get that feedback from people that i've worked with saying that it's transformed you know their experience of work or life that's motivating And, and i think by virtue of that yes it's definitely had a very positive impact on me because come you know 6 a.m or whatever time i i I happen to get up like i've got a uh, kicking my step and I've got a reason for being and that's motivating and if I'm motivated I'm going to put in the time that's required to succeed and that again it's a virtuous leap I help other people and that helps me 
Now, you've obviously grown quite a sizable business and our audience are basically all solo business owners, so doing what they love for themselves, by themselves. Do you think the size of our business should impact our vision in terms of what we want to achieve? Uh, I don't necessarily think so. I think that may have been true 20 or so years ago, um, but now with uh, barriers to technology coming way down and barriers to um talent on demand coming way down. I don't think that's true anymore. And, and there was an economist uh, by the name of Ronald Coase who penned a paper about 80 years ago called The Nature of the Firm. And he found that organizations would continue to grow in terms of headcount because the cost of them doing business with anyone outside of the organization was too high. But now with you know Freelancer and Upwork and these tools that en en enable us to quickly onboard and offboard contractors from all over the world, there's no reason why you can't be a one-person business that operates and generates the revenue of what a 10 or 20 business uh, person business did say a decade ago. And, and I think that's, that's an opportunity for today's solopreneurs and, and definitely the size of your business um, should not be limited by the number of employees in your company or, or the fact that you are a solopreneur. Yes, I absolutely love that perspective. And I think at the moment, as we're speaking in the beginning stages of October 2020, that um, as we emerge from COVID, hopefully, fingers crossed, that that is actually going to expand people's awareness of how much they can actually achieve and, and the types of the different types of ways they can sort of start a business or do something for themselves. I'm certainly reading a lot about in the media at the moment about how, you know, people who have been forced out of jobs or forced into a new kind of mindset. And I think that's really exciting and important to remember that it is actually possible to have a big vision for yourself and to make that tangible in terms of a business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many people have unfortunately been either stood down or, or, or fired from, from their jobs over the you know, period of the of the last six or seven months, and and that is devastating. But at the same time, you know, it's like that old saying: it's always darkest before the dawn. And when you stare into the abyss, um, that's oftentimes when you find character, and 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 it forces you to ask questions and approach your life in a different way. And so many people I know have set up, you know, online e-commerce businesses and things of that persuasion during the pandemic. Um, and a few people that I've personally worked with, you know, I've coached them on the fact that hey you've got this script in your head that tells you business is risky and it's going to cost a hell of a lot of money to get started, but you've got this idea. How about we just, I just show you how you can set up some ads, a quick landing page. And for a few hundred dollars, we can test it. We can generate some signups. We can see if this is actually something people want. And if so, that's going to give you the confidence to at least spend just a little bit more money building a low fidelity prototype um, with uh, more confidence. And that's sometimes what people lack. It's just the confidence. It's a lack of self-belief. But just getting some quick wins on the board by virtue of, you know, some sign-ups, um, free sign-ups on your website, that can be the difference uh, for a lot of people and it can help them on the path to, um, to changing their lives. And ultimately, it is really about momentum. Um, momentum is so powerful. And, and in any case, whatever it is you're trying to do, whether it's starting a business or just reading a book, what's the smallest possible thing you can do? And if I'm sitting on my couch late at night, if I just pick up a book and just commit to reading one page, I'm very likely going to finish reading the rest of the chapter. Yeah, so true. And the feeling that of, of being able to make that tiny first step and see some really quick results. Um, I'm, I'm sure that that feeling is exhilarating and I'm sure that that helps you go on to make the next tiny step and 
I'm a huge fan of your podcast and particularly the interviews that you do with some of the more lateral thinkers in the entrepreneurial space. I think you've got a great eye for talent. In listening to some of your interviews with these people and thinking about the scale of businesses that our community is running, it strikes me that no matter what the scale of the project we might be personally working on or what stage that is, that those people who are already sort of a few years ahead of us or several years ahead of us or thinking more laterally than we normally do can be so inspiring. What do you enjoy the most about listening to people's uh, stories? Uh, I enjoy expanding my thinking really because uh, I mean Future Squared is essentially about multidisciplinary thinking and so I go out of my way to interview say psychologists, neuroscientists, entrepreneurs, technologists, academics, like you name it. And I think when you approach the world and you approach problems through this lens of multiple disciplines and multiple angles, you tend to come up with better solutions. And you also tend to be a little bit more humble in terms of your ideas, your own ideas. You realize that, hey, I'm only looking at this potentially through a very narrow lens. In what ways am I not looking at it? And that's just forced me to be more um, intentional about how I make decisions. And I suppose also it has given me a healthy dose of, of skepticism when I'm reading a scientific study, which purports that X um, equals Y, um, because I now know that one study isn't enough and I need to have an entire body of evidence um, that's all more or less saying the same thing to increase the, the chances that what I'm reading is true. And so, yeah, it just made me a, a, a much more critical thinker, I think I would say. And that's what I've really enjoyed about it. And that's also forced or helped me to have conversations like this one where I can talk about things from numerous perspectives um, because oftentimes it's it's really just me um, remembering something that someone else has said based on some evidence that they've uh, obtained and I'm able to then interweave these things into conversations with people and just have richer conversations as a result of that. Yeah, it's incredible what you can absorb from a conversation if you're really open to taking in that kind of information. Now I wanted to get stuck into the productivity piece that we talked about in the intro from the quote from your article. Is productivity something that comes naturally to you or is this something you've learned to develop over time? Uh, it's definitely not something that's come natural to me. I think while I was working uh, in, in, the, in the corporate world, I found myself just being present a lot of the time. But if I was honest, I'd probably get into that space of deep work um, where we're up to five times more productive for maybe like two hours a day. And that was not unique to me. That was uh, pretty much all of my peers were, were the same way. So I think it's, we have this tendency to conflate presence with productivity or hours with output. And that's a throwback to the industrial revolution. And, and for me, it wasn't until I set up my own business, until I found myself working long hours and just anchoring to the way I was doing things in the corporate world, you know, I felt like I had to set a positive example for my uh, for my team by staying back until 7 p.m., which was just not true because if I was honest with myself, I'd be done by about 3 p.m. And I actually ran this six-hour workday experiment a couple of years ago with the team, and that acted as a forcing function. It forced us to focus on high-value activities, to do away with pointless meetings, eliminate waste, get better at really focusing and not checking the, our phones every five minutes, as you alluded to in the intro. Um, it forced us to do things like automate and outsource rudimentary 
process-oriented tasks. And by doing that, we found that in you know five hours or six hours of solid effort, you can get so much done. Um, and because you're focusing on high value tasks, the outcomes are much greater. And it also frees you up to then go off and, you know, spend time with the people you want to spend time with or, or spend time doing the things you like to do outside of work. Absolutely. So it kind of, you know, gives you a richer life, which in turn gives you a richer work life. Definitely. And that, you know, your, your experiences away from the office, you know, how you feel emotionally, physically, that's obviously going to, you know, give you an advantage when you are working over people who turn up to their desks feeling groggy, sleep deprived, you know, their relationships aren't going well because they're always at their desks and they're just not investing. Like that person may be physically present, but I guarantee you inside, they're just not operating at the same level as someone who is making time for all the other things um, that they, you know, should be making time for. And do you think it strikes me as, you know, admitting to the fact that you know, in five hours, you actually achieve what you need to achieve in a day. Do you think that's a courageous thing to bring into a workplace to kind of say, actually, I can get all my work done in this time? As you've alluded to there, that our workplace culture sort of encourages the opposite of that, you know, being at the desk all the time. Do you think it's sort of a brave thing to be able to admit that? Yeah, look, I think to a certain degree, because work is a socially validated activity. And a lot of the rhetoric we come across, particularly online and a lot of the entrepreneurial sort of magazines and social media profiles, you know, hashtag hustle, work hard, put in the 12 hours. But, you know, the science is plentiful on this sort of stuff. There's, and it all says that we can only get into the flow state for about four hours a day. Now, the reason why we tend to work 12 hours and busy, 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 and have nothing to show for it come the end of the day is because we're basically carrying around what I call tires that are slowing us down. And that's basically a, a visual mnemonic for task switching. Every time you switch tasks, it, it costs you 23 minutes to get back into the zone. Um, saying yes to everything, all sorts of meeting requests and, and all sorts of demands on our time often come at the expense of our priorities. Um, residual work, working on a task, maybe you spend four hours on a sales presentation, but then you end up spending another four hours tweaking the formatting um, because it's easier to do that than to move on to something else. Um, taking the path of least effort, that's the E entire, and that is our biological, predispos our biological predispositions, excuse me, to doing the easiest thing. So sitting down at our desks in the morning and jumping on Twitter, jumping on LinkedIn, getting to inbox zero, like all these things take some type of energy, but it's not really cognitive energy. It doesn't really require us to think that much. What's harder is actually sitting down to write, say, a 1,500-word article or some other such task that requires thinking. And so the more we can cultivate the ability to sit still with one task for extended periods of time and just focus, you know, ability, that ability to harness attention, that is the difference between someone who can get their stuff done in four hours and do it at a very high level and someone who works 12 hours and has very little to show for it come, come the end of the day. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that inbox trap is such a big one. I experimented myself a couple of weeks ago with not looking at my emails first thing in the morning and tackling whatever it was on top of my to-do list first. And gosh, I found that to be game changer, completely liberating. It was like, wow, I got so much game changer. And you're right. It puts your headspace in that cognitive headspace. So then you're more able to get through things that you actually, you know, are contributing more to your work. 
than the inbox is. Just to flip that on on its head a little bit, for our audience um, who are solo business owners, often or always juggling a million things at once because often we are doing all the aspects of our business from the accounting to the design, the social media, the marketing. Now I hear time and time again from our community that they find their days just evaporate because they a, don't know when to stop working. They're so driven and because unless they work, they won't make money. It's not like a paycheck's coming in from doing nothing. They, you know, that sort of propels them as well. Also, the other side of it is that they absolutely love what they do, which is obviously a great thing. But do you think the advice you've just given us there is any different for people in our community there in terms of really getting on top of your time when you are fully responsible for absolutely every aspect of your business? Firstly, I would say if you are responsible for absolutely every aspect of your business, um, either you are a freak of nature who is awesome at everything, or you're doing a whole bunch of things that you're not great at, but you're doing them anyway. So one thing I'm a big believer in is focusing on your strengths um, and doubling down on them. And if I consider my hourly rate as a solopreneur, say hypothetically $100 an hour, but I'm doing all these process-oriented tasks, I'm doing this marketing task, I'm doing that um, content task, whatever it is. But if that task can be done by someone for $10 an hour and I could earn myself $100 an hour by focusing on those high-value tasks, focusing on work that's aligned with my strengths, then that's what I should be doing. By virtue of outsourcing those tasks, it frees me up to focus more time on the things I'm good at. But at the same time, when you do that, when you are in that you know, deep flow state, you'll find that if you really cultivate the time to work on um, not just what I call insecurity tasks, tasks that make us feel like we're busy, but not really productive, but really productive tasks, you'll find that if you do that after five hours or so, six tops, you'll be pretty much done for the day. And and if you really care about outcomes long-term, like we, we human beings need rest and restoration. One of the studies I unpack in my book, Time Rich, um, which came out last week is around numerous organizations that find more productivity with less hours. And and also just not just organizations, but people in different lines of work, whether they're violinists at the Berlin Conservatory of Music, but also scientists. Um, One study I unpacked found that scientists that work 20 hours a week were twice as productive as those that work 35 hours a week. And the least productive group in this study worked 60 hours a week because they just weren't giving their bodies, their minds, time to rest and recover. And without that, you might be pulling the long hours, but you're not going to be productive. So really, you want to be honest with yourself. Is my time in front of my desk actually helping me move the ball forward? Or am I slowly burning myself out? And that's something that, you know, I don't have the answers, people listening to this will. And for them, it's really about being objective and, and and more intentional about how they work because there's three things we never learned in, 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 in school, learning how to learn, uh, learning how to think and learning how to work. And I think that last one is particularly important for solopreneurs who find themselves spending 12 hours a day wearing absolutely every single hat in the business. Mm, excellent advice there and some good questions for us to take away and ask ourselves today. Um, finally, Steve, well-being is a big focus for, he, uh, for us here at Flying Solo and I wondered what health and wellness habits or rituals you've created that help to support you get all the incredible work that you do done? Yeah, there's there's no shortage of um, rituals. Um, like, you, like yourself, um, I don't look at my phone or my email for the first hour or so of the day. Um, that time for me is... 
uh, exercise, going for an, a walk outside in a park, get some morning sunlight, like all of that stuff is really important. Um, that morning sunlight has been shown to also help us fall asleep in the evening. Most people don't make that connection, but it does. So if you find yourself struggling to sleep, get that vitamin D early in the morning. Making sure I cultivate time for 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 relationships. Um, obviously, right now in Melbourne we're in lockdown, but even you know picking up the phone and having an actual conversation rather than just texting my friends through WhatsApp. I think that's it goes a much further way than than text alone. Um, and having wind down habits in the evening in terms of not looking at my phone for an hour before bed, um, having the lights dimmed so my brain can start to release melatonin and. I can fall asleep easier because if there's one thing you can do to improve your health, it really is getting a good night's rest. And for most of us, that requires eight hours. Now, there are people who are one or two standard deviations from the mean who can get by on four hours, but it turns out that's about less than 5% of the population. And the vast majority of us aren't getting those eight hours and we're actually sleep deprived, but we don't know we're sleep deprived because we've been that way for years, if not decades. And the difference it can make on your cognition is huge, but not only that, it can help us long-term in terms of um, pushing back the uh, the effects and the early onset of um, neurodegenerative diseases. So get a good night's rest, get the exercise in. And ultimately for me, it's also just nutrition, making sure that I'm putting the right fuel into my body so that I'm not crashing because I've you know, eating too many simple carbs or sugars um, by by midday, and I can't really focus. So all those things combined is a good foundation: sleep, exercise, nutrition. There's a hell of a lot more to it, but those are three of the best places to start. Sounds great. Another round of excellent advice there. And you've mentioned your book, Time Rich, just a bit earlier. Would you like to give us a plug for that? As I know, it's a very new release. Sure. So yeah, it came out on the the 1st of October. So it's six days old, Time Rich, Do Your Best Work, Live Your Best Life, out through Wiley. And that's available at all places good books are sold. Um, but essentially, basically builds upon a, an article I wrote for Harvard Business Review called The Case for the Six-Hour Workday. And builds upon a lot of the stuff that we've touched on in this conversation. So people can actually download the first chapter of that book at timerichbook.com. Um, I've also prepared a PDF that solopreneurs, uh, freelancers can download there, which is full of automation tools that are very cheap that you can apply today to start getting more time back to either free yourself up to work on high value tasks or free yourself up to live more life. Fantastic. Steve, it's been great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for sharing all your insights with us. Thank you so much, Lucy. It's been an absolute pleasure.